sound of music. I suppose everybody here has seen that movie at one point or another. Been around since 1965. Has been enjoyed by audiences for all those years. I personally have seen it multiple times. Mainly because my daughter growing up had a video of it and played it over and over and over. But it never gets old. We are familiar with those who played the parts. They actually, it's a true story, other than a, a few things they, you know, doctor up a movie with. But uh, other than that, it's pretty much a, an accurate story. They came to America and, and, uh, a real family, the Von Traps. I'm going to assume this morning, that you know the plot. Because I want to jump to a final scene, one of the final scenes in the movie. Because there is a reference there to the psalm we're going to look at this morning. Here's a quote that comes from realclassics.com in regard to the scene that I refer to. After their performance at the festival, the Von Trapps managed to slip away from their Nazi escorts to take refuge at Nonberg Abbey, where the mother abbess informs them that the borders have now been closed. She hides them in the abbey graveyard moments before the dog Nazis arrive in hot pursuit. Bestowing upon Maria a few final words of wisdom before the climactic game of hide-and-seek, the Reverend Mother reminds her of the opening verse of Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. You have New King James on screen. I just quoted the King James, which was... The wording in the movie. Of course, <clears throat> the Von Trapp family are shown escaping by traveling on foot through the Alps to Switzerland in the scene just after that. The reference to Psalm 121 seems to imply that the mountains are a place of refuge. And as true as that may be, and as fitting as it was in the movie, because they then traveled into the mountains, the mountains are only the place of refuge. For the full verse, the full reading of Psalm 121, verse 1 says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help. And then verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So what do the mountains have to do? Well, it has this connection with God's help. Jerusalem is on a high mountain. And the temple resides or did reside in Jerusalem before it was destroyed. 
And it is in the temple where the very presence of God is made manifest. And so the thought from the psalm is that we lift up our eyes to the hills, to the high mountains, because there is where God dwells. Now, it is even more understandable when you put together the fact that Psalm 121 is what's called a pilgrimage psalm. In fact, there are 15 of them, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And if you'll look at the very introduction, I guess you would say, before verse 1, it says a song of ascents, as in ascending, a psalm of ascents. So all these pilgrimage psalms are called psalms of ascents. Because people ascended to Mount Zion, where the temple was. Now, there were three festivals, three Jewish feasts or festivals, every year that every Jewish male was required to attend, and, and many more than the males attended, for that matter. But these festivals were Passover, Forty days later, Pentecost, and then in the fall, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that is given as part of the law in Exodus chapter 23. So, three times a year, from all about in the land of Israel, people came to Jerusalem and ascended to Mount Zion to worship the Lord as they were instructed and commanded to do in the Old Testament law. But this could be a treacherous journey. Now, they made it less so by traveling in large groups. If it were not for that, it would certainly be a treacherous journey, traveling on foot through wilderness area, especially the route called uh, the Jericho Road from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And many from the north in Galilee traveled down the Jordan Valley uh, on the, you know, the lowlands to Jericho and then went up the Jericho Road. It was a dangerous trek, a dangerous journey. And so these psalms are called pilgrimage psalms. They were sung by the people. As they traveled, as they walked together, they would sing these 15 psalms of ascents as they approached Jerusalem. When I visited uh, the Holy Land back in the mid-90s, uh, on the bus traveling from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, we were going up and the guide had us singing psalms. Psalm, one of these, I can't remember which one, but we sang one or more of these psalms of ascents. But the psalm was written in the context of the fact that we live in a dangerous world. And it is written and meant to be sung so that we will understand and be reminded that God is our protector. My daughter sent me a little picture by text yesterday, sent it to my wife and I. It was a picture of Kermit the Frog. And uh, she got it from Funny Thoughts and Jokes. 
And Kermit is sitting there looking at it. You all remember Kermit, right? Everybody knows Kermit. It's not, not easy being green and all that stuff. You know, okay. But anyway, Kermit is sitting there looking at you, and this is what he says. I can't believe it's almost September. Literally feels like March was 16 years ago. Well, I think that kind of sums up where we're all at with this whole year. Some level of frustration. Yet, in fact, in, in, in spite of the disease that we're battling, the natural disasters that have occurred, the threats of war and the unrest and the violence in our streets, God is still our protector. And this we need reminded of even today. As much so, if not more, than they need to be, they needed to be reminded of it in the day that David wrote it. We must learn to depend on this fact. God is our protector. And that's the message of Psalm 21. So let's take a look at it and ask ourselves, well, what kind of a protector is he? What kind of a guardian is he? And I want you to notice with me three important elements of his protective work in our lives. Number one, uh, he is an able protector. In other words, he is able to protect us. An able protector. First of all, we notice that he is the Lord. I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which means Yahweh. Sometimes pronounced Jehovah through the German. It refers to the fact that he is the self-existent one, the one that always was, the one that is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. When Moses was approached by God, and God spoke to him from the burning bush, uh, Moses complained. And, and you want to know what Moses was saying to God, if I could just summarize it and put it into to our present moment context, Moses was saying, I can't function in this environment. That's what he was saying. Now, he was okay in the environment where he was, out there in the wilderness, keeping Jethro's sheep, but what he was saying to God is, I can't function back there. I can't function in Egypt. Remember, he he had, trying to do what was misguided as he was, he killed the Egyptian, who was abusing the Hebrew, and uh, he was literally uh, chased out of Egypt, fled for his life, and had been 40 years hiding in the wilderness. You know, I can't function there. I can't operate there. I can't represent you there. And and we are often faced with that same kind of feeling even today uh, when we find ourselves saying, you know, I, I, I can't handle what's going on. Uh, I know we are all handling it to a certain degree, but yet, we're frustrated with this aspect of it, that aspect of it, what we have to deal with here, the changes we've got to make there. Well, in the course of making this complaint to God, Moses said, you know, I, I don't even, I don't even know your name. Who am I going to tell them back in Egypt sent me? So in Psalm chapter three in verse 14, the Lord had this to say to Moses, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, 
I am has sent me to you. Not I was. He, he's never been described that way. He can't be described that way. He, he's not someone who was. He always has been. And he is at the present moment. And he always will be. He is beyond the finite. He is beyond this world, this created world, which has a beginning. And he is beyond the end of this world. He is forever and ever. He is the Lord. But then he is also the creator. Again, Moses said, you know, Lord, you know, I'm trying to tell you, you know, I'm not a good choice because I'm not very good with my words. Some evidence to believe that maybe Moses was afflicted with stuttering, I don't know. But he he didn't see himself as one to stand before the Pharaoh and and be an orator and to argue the uh, release of God's people. And God had this to say in reference to that complaint. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute? The deaf, the seeing, or the blind, have not I, the Lord, I am. Listen, the fact that he is a creator, the fact that he is the creator, the originator, the designer, the one who gave life, the one who created life. There, is there anything he cannot do when you think in terms of that? From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I mean, we're just talking about earth here. We can't even conceive of his realm. He is the creator of it all. Is there any wonder that he is an able protector? Of course he can protect us. This is the thought. I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. But not only is he an able protector, secondly, he is an attentive protector. An attentive protector. In other words, he's not removed from everything that we are dealing with, but he is concerned with it. He's tuned in to it, and he's on top of it. And so we read this. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. It's a pretty all-inclusive statement in regard to God's being on the job as our protector. First of all, we notice in verse 3, it says that he will not allow our, he will not allow our foot to be moved or our feet to be moved. 
Some translations say he will not allow us to slip or to stumble. I prefer the translation here. He will not allow your foot to be moved. By the way, everything that he said in verses 1 and 2, he, he said in the first person. And everything he says from verses 3 through 8, he says in the second person. So uh, he begins by saying, I, first person, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then he turns around in verse 3, and after telling everybody where he stands, he says, here's where, here's what you need to remember. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. David, the great psalmist, the great musician. Pretty good preacher as well, wasn't he? And you see, there's nothing to preach if it doesn't first touch your heart and soul. It says, I affirm. Now, of course he could affirm. God had protected David over and over and over. Uh, of course he could t- say, look, I look to the hills. Of course he could say that. And so now he says to others, God's not going to allow your foot to be moved. Now, if you translate it stumble, slip, it kind of gives that idea of you know, the minor thing, you know. Uh, I got these nice, soft, slip-on type shoes. Uh, I can't remember who makes them, but, but they're good. I, I love to not have to tie shoes when I want to just slip them on and go outside. They got these nice, soft rubber soles, and uh, they do really well until I do one of them dumb stunts where I, I you know, I just kind of shuffle my feet rather than really take a step, and those things will catch. <laughs> they're going, oops, you know, they stop right real quick if you don't lift your foot up and put it down. But I've, I've, I've never fallen. I just kind of stumbled. I just kind of slipped for a minute. That's not what he's saying. That's how we think when we read this, but that's not what he's saying. And here's how I know. In the Hebrew language, he uses a verb that refers to a state of being. And what he is saying is, God's not going to ever let you slip out of his hands. He's not going to ever let you go from being secure to being on the ground. He's going to keep you right here. He will not allow us to be moved. And then he says, <clears throat> he watches over us day and night. Uh, he who keeps you will not slumber. He, God doesn't go to sleep. He doesn't need to sleep. Only human beings and animals need to sleep. 
Behold, he who keeps Israel. See, yeah, yeah, he watches over Israel, but he watches over you too. He watches over Israel, but he watches over everybody in Israel. He watches over each one of us individually too. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. That means your guard, your protection. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. I, I love that expression. Uh, some of there may be some folks outside on the lawn this morning. I guarantee you they are in the shade back there somewhere and not seated out in the sun because the shade protects us from the heat, from the ultraviolet rays that will damage our skin and all those things. Uh, it's so nice to shed, to sit under the shade of a tree when there's a breeze going, even though it's warm. It's pleasant. We're protected from the elements. And so he says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. You don't have anything to worry about day or night. God's watching over you. My four-year-old grandson has still got that, that fear of the dark, you know. Time to go upstairs and get something and the lights aren't on. It's, you come with me. And, and if you go with him, he's fine. He knows you'll turn on the light. And he's not by himself. Yeah, I don't know. Something natural in our children as they grow up, uh, to be afraid of the dark. Now, if you're an adult and you're still afraid of the dark, you might have a little work to do. Uh, <laughs> children have to learn that the dark is nothing to fear. The same things that can hurt you by day can hurt you by night. The same threats are there. Uh, it's, it, it, it's an emotional thing to fear what you can't see. Uh, you have to kind of learn to adapt to that if you work at night or <clears throat> you're out at night. I learned that at a, a very early age growing up in Appalachia and doing all the things we did at night, you know. Which uh not worth mentioning at the moment, but God is always with us day and night. Now I lay me down to sleep goes the prayer. I pray the Lord my soul to keep he certainly will. He certainly will. He is an attentive protector. But then number three. <clears throat> He is an amazing protector. Now, I could have just had two points to this sermon because his attentiveness and the result of his attentiveness kind of go together. But I, I wanted to separate these out and, and just, just end up by just being amazed at the things that he promises here. And how that comes to bear on your life and mine. As I mentioned earlier, we live in a very dangerous world. There's an old story about a man who was out years ago. Him and his buddy were staying in a cabin doing some hunting. And the one guy went out one morning and he was encountered a bear. 
And the bear was angry, and the bear began to chase him, and he made a beeline for the cabin. And as he ran to the cabin, the bear began to overtake him. And as he got just about to the door of the cabin, the bear was breathing down his neck, but he happened to trip and fall flat in front of the door, which caused the bear to trip over him, slam into the door, and roll into the cabin where his buddy was. He quickly jumped up, shut the door, and yelled, You skin this one, I'll go get another one, and took off in the other direction. If that's a true story, and I doubt if it is, but if that's a true story, he didn't learn that God was protecting him. And he didn't mind leaving the scene as quickly as possible with the bear in the cabin with his buddy. But God is an amazing protector, and although it may seem on the human level that things are circumstantial, God is our protector. In the case in point, again, if it were a true story, it wasn't happenstance that he tripped when he did. Or at least in the mind of the writer, that was a point. Let's uh, let's uh, look at verse 7 now. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. That's, a, that's an absolute promise. The Lord shall protect you from all evil. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that God's going to restrain you when you choose to flirt with evil. But God is there to protect you as long as you listen to Him and obey Him and, and uh, don't mess things up too bad with your old sinful nature. He'll protect you from all evil. Going back to 2 Kings chapter 6, in verse 8, the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants saying, my camp will be in such and such a place. Now, what happened was God revealed that information to Elisha. And he let the leaders in Israel know. And so the king of Syria was never able to uh, surprise Israel. And so what happened is, is the king of Syria decided, I got to get rid of Elisha. So they did some undercover work, found out where Elisha was, and he sent some, uh, some of his army to dispatch Elisha. So dropping down to verse 13. So he said, go and see where he is and then get him. And it was told him saying, surely he is in Dothan. Now that's, that's where Elisha is. Verse 14. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, Elisha's in the city. I'm sure the city is protected, but they're probably not going to protect Elisha. So Elisha's pretty well, you know, vulnerable. The Syrian king has surrounded the place with his army and all the rest. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, Elisha's servant, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? 
So he answered, this is Elisha's answer, do not fear. For those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. An angelic army, unseen by the normal vision, was there to protect Elisha. And the king of Syria couldn't lay a hand on him. He will protect us from all evil, no matter what the magnitude. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13, that we ought to pray that God would deliver us from the evil one. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. We belong to God. He can and will protect us from evil. David knew well when he wrote in Psalm 23 verse 4, these words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they come for me. And by the way, the rod and the staff uh, had very important functions, uh, both offensively and defensively for a shepherd. And God's got plenty of armament to take care of the problem. He protects us from evil, number one. But then look again at our text. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. Now the word soul here is to be understood in the sense of your life. He will preserve your life. And so uh, he not only protects us from evil, but he protects us from death. I suppose one of the greatest fears that, that man has is the fear of death in general. But God will protect us from death. Now, how are we to understand this? Because everybody dies. The wages of sin is death. And we all, we, we all, we're all sinners. We're all going to die physically. Of course, we are victorious over death through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection to come. But still the fact remains we all die. Someone says, you know, what's the death rate? 100%. Okay, it's always 100%. We're all going to die unless the Lord comes back before that moment. So what he is saying here is the Lord protects us from premature death. How do I know that it means that he'll protect us in general from premature death? Well, David who wrote this as a shepherd in the, in the wilderness by himself, a young man in his teens confronted and killed a lion who could have took his life, and God protected him. And then he also confronted a bear who was after his sheep, and David killed the bear, and God protected him, and God protected him on the battlefield when he went up against Goliath, and on the more battlefields all through his life until he died, an old man of natural causes. David knew exactly what it meant to have God's protection, and to operate in faith based upon that. Paul, the great apostle Paul, was protected from premature death when he was stoned at Lystra, when he was bitten by the poisonous state, snake at Malta, not to mention the multiple shipwrecks and everything else that happened to the man. Well, what does Ecclesiastes tell us?
There is a time to be born and a time to die. Time to plant and a time to pluck. What is planted? In other words, Solomon says everything is in the hands of God and according to the plan of God. And nothing's going to change that. I think probably every one of us here, probably every one of us, could relate some story about our life where we were in a very dangerous circumstance, and yet somehow, some way, God protected us. I won't. I won't bore you with, with mine. But we we all have that kind of experience. Maybe it was an auto accident, or some other situation. God protects us from evil, and He protects us from premature death. When His time comes, then that that moment we die is a doorway into eternity that is death experience, but without the sting of death, which is judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It It is a pleasant journey. Not an odious one, not, not a fearful one. He protects us from death. Now you say, but you know, Elisha, well, <laughs> he was a man of miracles. He stands head and shoulders above any of us. Well, let's, let's talk about it for a minute. John G. Patton was a missionary to the New Herbides Islands number of years ago. And according to the story, which is often told, there was a native chief who was very upset at the fact that he was reaching people for Christ, and the chief hired a man to kill John Patton. The man went to the missionary's house, but instead of murdering Patton, he returned in terror, saying he'd seen a row of men dressed in white surrounding the missionary. The chief thought he had just drank too much whiskey and encouraged him to go again. This time he took other tribe members with him. That night they also th- they all saw three rows of men surrounding Patton's house. Later on, the chief on another occasion, I guess uh, it was, asked the missionary where he kept the men during the daytime that surrounded his house at night. And Patton disclaimed the whole idea. What are you talking about? Finally, he realized that God was allowing him to see the angelic protection. You say, well, but man, does it? Is that going on in your life and mine all the time? It could be. We only, we only see with physical eyes. We don't see the spiritual. Have you ever been through a car accident or something where you, you know, you, afterwards you, you walked away and you said, how did I walk away from that? I've had two experiences in my life where I've literally walked away from what could have been a very deadly accident without a scratch. How does that happen? There's things going on we do not see. But also remember, God is a sovereign God. He's in control of even the minutest details. Here's a a wonderful story. It comes from the Civil War. And it's 
in reference to Ira Sankey. Now, you probably don't know who Ira Sankey was, but Ira Sankey became well-known as D.L. Moody's song leader and musician. This is back in the late 1800s. Sankey wrote many Christian hymns and, and, and so forth, and he would be there when, they, when, when Moody would have a great, I don't know what they called him in those days, it was like a Billy Graham crusade. And, and Moody was a fa- one of the early great mass evangelists. <clears throat> well, sometime after the Civil War, and after he had become well known, Sankey was traveling on a steamer in the Delaware River when some people on board recognized him. They had seen his picture in a newspaper and knew that he was with Evangelist D.L. Moody. So they asked Sankey if he would sing one of his own songs, a song that he had written. But Sankey told the people, well, I would really rather sing a personal favorite of mine that was written by William Bradbury. The name of the hymn is Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. It's in our book. Savior like a shepherd lead us. Something about his tender care. I remember that. There's also a line in that hymn that speaks about God being the guardian of our way. And Sankey began to sing the hymn, Savior like a shepherd lead us. He invited the people on the steamer to sing along with him. And after they finished singing, a man stepped out of the shadows and said, Mr. Sankey, were you ever in the Army? Sankey said, yes, I joined up in 1860. Second question came to the man. Were you ever on guard duty at night in Maryland around 1862? Why, yes, said Sankey. The man said, well, I was in the Confederate Army, and I saw you one night at Sharpsburg. You were wearing your blue uniform, and I had you in my gun sight as you stood there in the light of the full moon. And just as I was about to pull the trigger, you began to sing. The man continued. He said, it was the same hymn you just sang tonight, and I couldn't shoot you. Call it coincidence. I suppose some might. That's no coincidence. That's the sovereign hand of God protecting a man whose time had not come and whose work was not over. He protects us from death. He protects us when we travel. Okay, let's go back to the context of the hymn. A hymn of a sense. Traveling to Jerusalem. Traveling over... Some treacherous territory. By the way, verse 8 says, The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in. That's traveling, right? This whole psalm is about God protect us as we travel. All those that lived in the north of Galilee or up in you know Israel, depending on your time, again, would travel down the Jordan Valley, to Jericho and up the Jericho Road, coming west to Jerusalem. How do I know that was a very treacherous journey? Well, Luke chapter 10, 
Luke chapter 10, verse 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. Chapter 30, I should say, chapter 10, verse 30. The very first thing Jesus says is he introduces this story of the Good Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now he was just traveling the opposite direction. He was going down. The pilgrims would go up, but then the pilgrims had to go down when they went home. Uh, but a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Why? Because it was just thick with thieves. Outlaws. Think the wild, wild west in the east. Think the train robbers and then those that robbed stagecoaches and, you know, attacked covered wagons and all the rest. That, that's what you're talking about. Fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. He protects us when we travel. Do you know, 1.3 million people die every year of automobile accidents worldwide. 1.3 million. That's 3,287 people a day lose their lives in this world to a car accident every day. Now, when you first read that, you, you, you think, wow, that's a lot. No, 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 no. That's not very many compared to how many travel. That's a pretty low figure, really. In fact, if it wasn't for the protective hand of God, it'd probably be ten times that, judging from what I see on the roads. I about was relieved of a fender this week. Setting at a stop sign. Someone cut short. I just, I knew I was had. I just had the presence of mind to let up on the brake and pull the steering wheel to the right or it had got my fender for sure. If not worse. God is still our protector when we travel. I don't know about you, but every time someone in my family travels, I always pray, God, protect them. Watch over. And then I can sleep. Of course, I can pretty much sleep anytime, you know, my wife says. No, there's sometimes I can't. You know, we all are prone to worry about this or that, especially with our kids. He protects us when we travel. And then finally, in verse 8, at the end, from this time forth and even evermore. See, he, he protects us forever. He protects us beyond this life. He assures us of a better life and a perfect existence. Nothing's ever going to interfere with that. No pain, no suffering, no death. No, no, no. Forever he is our protector. So he's an able protector, an attentive protector, and an amazing protector. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, verse 41 for a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ was a young man, maybe around 12. His parents, according to Luke 2.41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, just like the other Jews do, just like the people who David wrote about here. And, and, and they no doubt sang Psalm 121 along with the others. Doesn't that just blow your mind? Your people on the way to Jerusalem to worship God, lift up your eyes to the hills from whence cometh your help. 
the Lord is our help, the creator of heaven and earth, and he's walking with them, singing the song with them. Ah, it blows my mind. You remember the whole story? He, he de- debated with the priests, and, and then he, he he was so involved in that, they all left. And Mary thought he was with, jo- was with Joseph, and Joseph thought he was with Mary, and had to go back and get him. And they reprimanded him. He said, well, you should have known I had to be about my father's business. Kind of hard to discipline a perfect child, isn't it? <laughs> you all have any perfect children that you have problems with discipline? I don't think so. God was walking with them. You know what? He's been walking with us ever since. He walked with his disciples. But then he was crucified, but he arose from that grave and he walked with his disciples some more. Then he ascended back to heaven, but he sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, to live inside of us. And he walks with us every day. He never forsakes us. He never leaves us. He's always there. And we can depend on Him. What comfort. What comfort. What strength. We can draw from that. We can face every day. Concern. Yeah, maybe. Confident. Confident that God's going to be with us? Exercising faith in everything we do? I'm not talking about being, you know, ignorant and stupid, doing things you shouldn't do, but just accomplishing what God has for you to do today without being overcome with fear and worry. 